Hello, and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will focus on a mystery, suspense, or thriller written by or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we will look at the 1955 movie Les Diaboliques, starring Simone Signoret, Vera Clouseau, and Paul Maurice, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau, based on the novel She Who Was No More by Pierre Boulot and Thomas Narcijac. We want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We will be having a thorough discussion, and the killer and twist will be revealed at the end. So if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. To start us off, here is our synopsis. A woman and her husband's mistress conspire to murder the man. After the crime is committed, his body disappears, and a number of strange occurrences ensue. This movie has a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty good. Yeah. So, Laura, tell me a little bit about why you chose this movie, because this was something that you brought to me. Right. Well, the way that we choose movies for this podcast is we both have to agree on it. So usually one of us will say, hey, I found this cool thing, and the other one will watch it or read it, and then we'll say yay or nay. This was a total accident. I work at a used bookstore, and we happened to get a Criterion edition of this movie in, and I thought, hey, this looks kind of cool. Let me see what it's about. Read the synopsis on the back, and took it home, watched it, and came to Lacey and said, this is amazing. She watched it. Agreed it was amazing and said, this is something we should be sharing. Even though it's not directed by a woman or even written by women, it's a very male-dominated creative team, this does have two really strong roles for women in a time when it wasn't really a popular thing to have those strong roles. And it's kind of an alternative role for a woman in a way, because I don't know, this movie felt really strange to me being in 1955. It is French. But seeing the women so open with each other, because these two women are both with the same man, and one is the wife, one is the mistress, and they know about each other, and they have a relationship, like a friendship almost. And that, to me, is really, really interesting, just to see those kind of multi-layered roles for women in a time when it wasn't really commonplace to see that. Yeah, the women were the bombshells or the femme fatales or the doting wives or the daughters, but you didn't see two strong women playing off of each other. Or having roles of this complexity. Right. And leading the movie, being the two starring roles. Yes. This movie, while there are very important supporting roles that um, Clouseau does put in the movie and make them very important, this movie could be the two women. You honestly don't even need to see the husband. It's all about the relationship between these two women and what you think it is. Well, you actually do need to see the husband. We will get into why. I guess you do, but I'm talking about more of like the relationship, like talking around, or like the scenes that happen without the husband being there is what I find really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do need the husband, but the scenes without him and when it's just the two women interacting with each other are what are truly magical to me. Yeah, that's the strongest point of the movie is their Mm -hmm. relationship and how well these two women work together. Yeah. Even though they ended up not speaking by the end of filming. Yeah, in actual real life, they were not speaking. Yeah, they were all very good friends when they started filming and... This turned out to be a much longer filming process than what they had signed on for. And the director only paid Simone Signore for eight weeks instead of the 16 weeks it took to film. And Girlfriend had a little bit of a problem with that, which is completely understandable. So from what is remembered or recorded is that the relationship between the director and Simone Signore became very tense. And then Vera Clouseau, who happened to be the wife of the director, depending on how she felt, would either diffuse the situation temporarily or pour oil on a fire. So all in all, you know, a great working environment. Yeah, just full of um, safe spaces. Um, From what I hear, this director, um, who is someone that Hitchcock even looked up to and wanted, and it's reflected in Hitchcock's films how much... He was influenced by this director 
this man really asked a lot of his actors, and at the time, he asked very unusual things of them. So actors that signed up for a Clouseau film knew they were not going to be asked to do the typical things that they were going that they would be asked to do on another set. In the special features on this DVD, it talked about how he would make them do take after take, sometimes up to 20 takes to get it the way that he wanted. Over the smallest thing, like unlatching the, the basket or how someone walked away from a camera. There was a scene where Simone Signore is walking away from the camera from the window and that's what, and so her back's to the camera and he stopped the scene and screamed at her that she did it wrong and she's like, my back's to you, how do you know I'm doing it wrong? And apparently she wasn't angry enough because she wasn't holding enough tension tension in her body in the right places. He said that your hands are in your pockets and they're not clenched. Yeah. So he made her do it again, clenching her hands. Even though you don't see her hands. So he was one of those directors that I think maybe was a little difficult to work with at times. Probably, like most men at the time. Because <laughs> we all know about Hitchcock. So I don't think as much has come out about Clouseau, for whatever reason, but needless to say, he probably was a very difficult man to work with. Um, his product, though, is amazing. Oh yes, definitely. I think we both agree that this movie has worked its way into our top 10 films. Absolutely. It is by far one of the best suspense thriller movies that I've seen in a very long time. And watching it, knowing the history and knowing at the time it was created, it was revolutionary. It changed the face of thrillers. And so many films after it take so much from it and take so much inspiration from it. Even the way shots are set up, that's taken from this movie. Well, I want to say one more thing before we actually start talking about the story, but I want to comment <coughs> on the lack of scoring that is done in this movie. Yes. It really makes it feel real. Well, we were talking about this earlier. There are so many amazing shots in this movie and moments that you truly feel yourself tensing up because you don't know what's coming. And I think had they made the decision to put more of a score into this movie, because there's only really music in the intro and the credits, right? I think there might be one other time or if there's music playing from a radio. Clouseau was very specific about, about what the music was, but otherwise it's a completely musicless film. So had they added music in, it would have completely changed the feeling. It's just natural noises, kids running around and playing, birds, wind, rain, just stuff you would hear. Right. So that makes it feel more like you're there. And actually, to me, it makes it more tense mm -hmm. because you're not relying on this conceived atmosphere that a score creates in you. Because a lot of times with thrillers or horror movies, you know something's going to happen because the music starts going, you know, it builds or whatever. And with this, you don't. You're not given those clues. So you're just there for the ride. Almost as a modern audience watching it, you're waiting for the music to come in. So you're tense. I was tense for two reasons first watching this. One, I was waiting for the music to come in and be like, dun dun. And then I was waiting for whatever to happen, happen. So there was like two senses of anticipation I was feeling. I think I've only seen one other movie that does this, yeah. and it was a, a British movie from the 70s called Blow Up, mm. and I, it was such a revelation to me that you could, that people would do a movie like this, and it was so nice, because I hate background music, like, when you're in the stores, and there's just music playing all the time, and that, that just kind of bothers me, mm. so the fact that this just had birds and wind and people talking in the background it was really wonderful because it didn't have that extra layer of stuff that's trying to distract me right i'm not opposed to a film score i'm not opposed to background music what i appreciate however is intention and i appreciate the intention behind how particular he was with the music he chose with the sound that he chose with the visuals that he chose to tell the story because it really goes back to you don't need all of this extra stuff. If you know your shit, you can make a great film with bare bones. If yeah. you know how to get a good shot, if you know how to get the right actor and the right script, 
you don't need all of those extra things. So while we've done a lot of praise for this movie, we haven't explained what it's about. So should we get into that? Yes, let's. Okay, go for it. So we open with the credits on this kind of weird image. Yeah, you can't really tell what it is. When I first saw it, I thought it was a wet asphalt road. And raindrops were hitting the road. And we linger there for um, at least a minute. At least. It, there's quite a bit of credits that roll over the image. The image is later revealed to be a dirty swimming pool. But you can't tell because it's such a close-up shot and it's it almost doesn't move that you're not really sure what it is. But later we do find out that it is a, it's a dirty swimming pool. And there is a quote that comes up. And one interesting thing is that the original title for this movie was The Widows, but they didn't think that that would be a very marketable title, so they changed it to The Devils, which was the title of a book that this quote came from. So is it thought that Cluzo included the the passage that's at the beginning of this movie to be like, hey, sorry for stealing your book title. That's what it said in the special <laughs> features on the, the Blu-ray, that they think that that's why he included it, because it doesn't really fit otherwise. I'm not going to give you credit, but I will use your book. And from there, we move into the story. We're introduced to this school, which is in this really amazing building, but it's kind of isolated from everything. It's got a gate, so nobody gets in or out. And if we haven't mentioned this, this is um, set in France. It is all in French. Um, so lots of subtitles. But just so we're getting a good feel for this gothic kind of rundown building in this small town in France. And it is a black and white movie, so that really lends itself to the atmosphere as well. Yes. And we meet the boys. This is an all-boys school. And some of the teachers. I don't remember their names. Because everything is said with such flourish and with in with the uh, French in the beautiful French language. Yes, within the French language. So you're not quite sure sometimes what what the names are, but I believe in the credits there is Raymond, Herbeau, those are two of the teachers. And then I believe we meet Simone Signore's character, who is Nicole Horner, probably said much more beautifully in French. And then we meet Christina de la Salle, who actually purchased the school, but her husband, Michel, is the headmaster. And he is everything you think about a stereotypical, terrible headmaster. So he drives through the gate, through this puddle, and runs over this boat that a little kid has made. It's like even here, Clouseau is already starting with the imagery, because it's water. He works a lot with water, and you will find out why. And then this car destroying this child's toy, which is very much representative of him, I feel, as a character, because he is the headmaster, and he's not nice. He's very cruel. Um, I believe he's coming in from town, and he's gotten produce, or he's gotten more food for the school, and one of the cooks says that this food is rotten. He goes, well, make it work. Or he's like, you're not buying it. So he's buying rotted food, for them to cook for these people, for the kids and for the staff, and doesn't really care. And then we move into the school itself, and we see Nicole coming out, and she has on these sunglasses yeah. in the middle of the day. And you can immediately tell she is strict. She is very strict with the boys. She's standing outside the classroom and clapping her hands in a rhythm like a metronome almost as they walk out, and they have to walk in like a perfectly straight line. And she's very kind of short and harsh with her colleagues at work. So you kind of get the sense that she's kind of a no-nonsense, kind of severe lady, which I identify with. And we find out here that they know about everything that's going on. They know that she is having an affair with the headmaster. Yes. They know that he beats her, hence the sunglasses. He beats both of them. Yeah, he beats both his wife and his mistress. And... Everybody knows about this. It's completely open. And they are—they have a relationship with each other. They talk about how terrible he is. Um, and I think at this point we're, we're going to meet Christina. Yes. The wife. She teaches Spanish, which is funny because Vera Clouseau is Brazilian. And uh, one of 
the boys brings her this beautiful lace fan mm -hmm. and she talks about how and she talks about what it's like in her country and that you don't need umbrellas you would wear a straw sombrero oh is she brazilian in this as well mm -hmm. oh my gosh how did I, i've watched this movie twice and i haven't caught on to that i just knew vera Rousseau, the real person was brazilian her character is as well. There's a lot of parallels between her real life and this character. Which is what's funny because there was all this tension on set. Actors that worked on the show tend to, tended to start thinking of the actors and the director in the context of the love triangle of Nicole, Christina, and Michelle. But instead of the actor who plays Michelle being him, that was, that was um, Clouseau. Because apparently the tension was very similar. Interesting. So lots of parallels. Yeah. Took it very seriously. So we find out that they're getting ready for this long holiday. Mm -hmm. And the boys are planning on going off. Most of the staff is too. Nicole approaches... Christina. Christina, thank you. There are so many names, and then you have to remember somewhat of pronunciation for this film. So maybe two Texans reviewing a French film wasn't the best idea, but here we are. Oh. <laughs> so... Nicole approaches Christina and they go up to the science room and they're looking at this bottle and one of the students walks by and sees them. He runs downstairs and tells everybody that he saw them with a bottle and that they must be drinking. <laughs> Drama. And so they walk out into the courtyard where all the boys are playing and this is when we get the first good look at this dirty swimming pool that was in the opening image. Mm-hmm. And one of the boys is drawing on the wall. And Christina says, if you want to draw, you can stay here over the holiday. Just, you know, kind of giving him a warning not to draw on the building. Michelle hears that and says, okay, that's it. You're not going on holiday. You're staying here. And she says, oh, I was just threatening him. And he says, well, don't threaten me. So, yeah, time after time, we're establishing that this guy is an asshole. In layman's terms, just he's very cool. And any time that he can, he kind of likes to undermine her or make her feel self-conscious. It's, it's very interesting watching the way that he treats her than how he treats Nicole because it's very different. He's abusive to both women, but he's much more predator with Christina than he is with Nicole. Uh, very much so. Yeah. So anytime that he can kind of jump onto her or correct her or just add a little more misery to her life, he does that. But he's very controlling to everybody. Yes. He limits the amount of wine that his uh, staff can drink at dinner. Only two glasses. And he makes everybody ask him for pretty much everything. Yeah. To me, one of the worst scenes of his abuse is this dinner scene where... We find out that the fish they're serving is not fresh at all. The cook says she soaked it in vinegar all day to try to make it edible, but nobody's eating. And he forces Christina in this most horrible manner to eat this fish. By now we found out that she has heart problems, right? Yeah, because they talk about the fact that she has a, a weak heart and she's not well. And... He seems to kind of delight in tormenting her a little bit more because of this. So everyone's eating this fish or pretending to eat the fish, and she tries to eat it. She spits it out. He makes her get another forkful of fish and try to eat it. And, he's, and he stops the whole room to watch her and make her eat. So it's just like it just shows his control and her humiliation over having to eat this rotted fish. You can see her visibly trying not to throw up with tears streaming down her face. It really is a testament to the actor because it was great. Rumor is that the director actually gave them rotted fish and made them eat it to get actual reactions. We don't know if this is true or not, but that's what rumor has it. Even still, to get that beautiful shot of the tears streaming down and this very beautiful movie moment, still being able to do that while eating rotted fish, still a testament to the actor. Yeah, it's heart-wrenching to watch. You feel her pain, but it's also a fantastic scene. Well, and it makes you hate him. Oh, you you hate this dude immediately. 
at this point, have we established their... Yes, we yeah. know that they are planning to kill him. I think they talked about that when they had the bottle. Christina doesn't want to. She's very religious, and she's afraid she's going to go to hell. Nicole, Nicole is doesn't just, have that problem. No, she doesn't <laughs> believe in God, and she said he's terrible to you and to me, and we need to be free of him. So let's do this. She doesn't believe in God or that he should live. So Christina is supposed to leave the next morning with Nicole for the long holiday, but she says that she's not going to go. Well, we see one last thing to push her over the edge. The dining room is cleared, and... Michelle backs her into a corner. We don't see what happens, but it's alluded to that he rapes her. And one thing that I think points to that is the fact that when she's trying to sneak out the next morning, her shoes are in two different places in the room, just thrown on the floor. Mm -hmm. She doesn't come across in any way in her life as a person who would just kick her shoes off. No. It's more like they were ripped off of her and thrown. Yeah. So I think, and I believe the book that this was based on, I believe she was physically and sexually abused. So if you didn't hate this dude before, now you really can get on board. So she does. She sneaks out with Nicole and they take the school's truck and drive up to the house that her family owned. Well, that they own. They're dead now. It's just Nicole and she rents it out to... She rents, the upstairs up, uh, she rents the upstairs apartment to some other teachers, and okay. she keeps the bottom apartment for herself. So this is where they hatch their plan. And so they show up at Nicole's home. I can't pronounce the city's name, but they say it enough. What? Oh, but the city where Nicole's home is is the actual town that the director grew up in. In real life. He was born there. Yeah, so they're in this apartment and they're kind of hatching their scheme. So tell me a little bit more, a little bit more about what's happening. So the basic plan is that Christina's going to call up Michelle and say, I talked to a lawyer, I want a divorce. Because at this time it was not easy to get a divorce. And so she does this. She doesn't want to. She's really scared. Nicole says, the phone won't hit you. It won't bite. So they get him on the phone. She tells him this. He says he's coming up, which was, was the part plan. of the plan. The whole time. So don't they have the bottle with them at this time? They have the bottle. The plan is that they are going to put this um, sleeping potion or this... Um, Sedative. Yeah. Sleeping potion. <laughs> Tranquilizer. <laughs> Tranquil. That's the word I was looking for. We can say sleeping potion. <laughs> In this bottle of whiskey or bourbon. Some kind of liquor, because of course this guy loves to drink, why wouldn't he? Yeah. So they drug this, or they dose this bottle with this sedative, tranquil, tranquilizer, whatever it is. And so Nicole goes to keep the tenants busy so that there's the alibi. Christina waits for Michelle, and he shows up. And she's right there with a the drink. And I, and at this time, he's trying to convince her in a very heartless, cruel way, because he can't do anything nice, that she can't divorce him, that she would be nothing without him. And that she'd lose everything. Yeah. Because we also find out that the money is all hers. Yeah. The school belongs to her. So he basically married her for her money. And he even says back in the dining room scene, because they're talking about her weak heart, and he even goes, die, die quickly, my sweet, or something like that. Like, he's very open that he's ready for her to die, and then he's just going to take over the school and live with Nicole, and they'll just, you know, live happily ever after without her. So it would be better if she would just end up, hurry up and die. Yeah, make everybody happy. Yeah, but yeah, he doesn't want her to divorce him, because then he loses the money. So this whole time that this conversation, this back and forth is happening, he is drinking this alcohol, liquor, whatever it is, and slowly but surely... He starts to get drowsy. So he's trying to seduce her, and he lays down on the bed oh, and is trying to get her to come to bed with him, and he passes out. Perfect. So he's twisted her arm, literally, and broken down any restraints <coughs> that she had about not murdering him. And she's ready to do it. Because she's gone back and forth a lot. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I'm religious. Now she's strong. <laughs> I'm ready to kill. 
<laughs> and Nicole comes back down. They fill up the bathtub. Again, water playing a huge part in this movie. So they fill up this bathtub, and in goes Michelle, and they drown him. Yeah, he's dead. There's a really funny bit with the upstairs neighbors where they hear the water running, and the guy gets really mad because he misses the last question on the radio show that he's listening to. Because it's so loud. The pipes are so loud. And he keeps going on about, how would she take a bath at 10 o'clock at night? (laughs) I love that that's what he's mad about. How dare you bathe at 10 o'clock at night? Well, and then he said he can't go to bed because when she drains the tub, it'll wake him up. So he's just really upset about this bath. You know, I'm not really mad that he's inconvenienced. I'm not mad that any man in this movie is inconvenienced, honestly. So they drown Michelle, and then they take this giant statue and set it on him so that he can't, I guess, accidentally wake up. Yeah. (laughs) Come back alive and get out of the tub. So they literally weight him down in the bathtub and cover him with the shower curtain, or the tablecloth that's on the bed. They bought a special plastic tablecloth to cover him up and then later to wrap his body in so it won't drip. So they let him soak overnight. And the next day they put him in this giant wicker truck. Tell everyone it's full of books, load him up. And start driving back home. Yep. They encounter a slight hiccup when they get stopped by a border patrol agent or a police officer for something. And they think that he's going to find... You think, as the as a person watching the film, that they're going to get caught. And at this point, you see how badly both women are treated, so you don't want them to get caught. So you're really rooting for them. They stop for gas. A soldier tries to hitch a ride with them. I can't remember what it was. Wow. And he, the soldier is drunk, and Christina says, no, no, you can't ride with us. And he opens the back of the truck and says, oh, I'm just going to ride with you anyway. Because why would I listen to a woman? And some water from the wicker basket has leaked out. Mm -hmm. Well, the inn owner comes and pulls the soldier off and sees the water and thinks that he peed in the back of the truck and offers to clean it up. And they say, no, 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 we got to go. And they just jump in and drive off. This is also showing, again, the differences between the or the opposite nature of Christina and Nicole, because Christina's, like, very nice about it. She's very nervous, but she's very nice and accommodating and being very sweet. And Nicole's, like, basically nicely going, go to hell. And we've, they're leaving this track of stuff. So if somebody wanted to go back and trace this, there's all these weird things that have happened. Yeah, because if, yeah, if someone found one little clue, you would really be able to figure out what happened. They don't cover their tracks that well, but it is 1955, so... Yeah. Yeah. So they get home, the gate's locked. They have to wake up the groundskeeper to let them in. He had a really fun name. Was it Platibo? Something like that, yeah. I love the name. And they wait for him to go back to bed, take the basket out of the back of the truck, and unceremoniously dump the body in the dirty pool. So that... When his body's found, they'll just assume that he fell in and drowned. That's going to be the plan. Now they just have to wait for him to bob to the surface. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. And he never surfaces. Tension is building. And Yeah, because Christina can barely stand it at this point. She's like, this body needs to be found. She's like looking out the window. She's supposed to be teaching Spanish or something. And she's looking out the window, not even paying attention to her students. Because she's so racked with guilt and nervousness and anxiety that she just she can't take it the boys are playing and they knock their ball into the swimming pool right so they think okay it's going to be found now because a kid literally dives in the water and christina's having an anxiety attack about this kid jumping in the pool because she doesn't want him jumping over the dead body and nicole's like it's fine (laughs) again showing the differences she's like that's fine and so he comes up out of the water and he said there's something down there he dives back down again. You think this is it. He comes up with a cigarette lighter. And it's Michelle's, yeah? Yeah. So it's Michelle's lighter, but the body's nowhere to be found. They drain the pool. The body's nowhere to be found. So what happened to the where, body? Where is the body? And what happens next? Is Does the suit arrive? Because both of them at this point are nervous. And they're, they don't know what's going on, but Nicole's like, play it cool. Christina can't because she has no pool. And a suit arrives from the cleaner, and it's the suit he was wearing when they murdered him, with a note and a key, right? 
No, the key they find oh. when they go to the dry cleaners to ask who had the suit delivered. This is why you shouldn't take notes when you watch a film for the second time because you miss a lot of important points. And they say, oh, there was this in the pocket, and it's a key to a hotel room. So they go... They think someone's blackmailing them. Yeah. So Christina wants to go meet them to see what they want. I don't think Nicole wants to. Does she? I don't think so. I don't think she does because she's like, I'm not going. So Christina goes. And the hotel room is empty. And she gets startled by a cleaner that's there. Mm -hmm. And she asks about the man that's renting the room. And the cleaner says that they haven't seen him. He checked in, and that was it. He hasn't been back. Mm -hmm. So again, more questions, no answers. So then Christina sees in the paper <gasps> that a body has been found in the scene. The sin. The sin. The, the river. The sin, the scene, the sin. And the, the body is naked. Yes. But this is where our clue from last episode comes in, because it said if one wants to commit suicide in a sin, one doesn't have to dress. Well, what was Or the... undress. Undress. I couldn't remember what it was off the top of my head. So the body matches the description of Michelle, and Christina freaks out and says, I have to go. It's him. He's been found. I mean, I don't know what she thinks about this, but she drives to the morgue. I literally don't know what she's thinking because she didn't want to commit this murder. She did, but almost half-heartedly. Like, she did it in the moment. Like, she wanted him dead. But then everything after that is very half-hearted. It's almost doing everything she can to get caught. It's like she's not thinking. And Nicole's getting really frustrated with her, which as a, as a watcher, as a viewer, I'm also getting frustrated with her because it's like, girl. But then you wouldn't have a movie, I guess. So she goes to the morgue to identify the body. Everything matches. It's, this is Michelle. She goes, they pull the sheet back. It's not Michelle. So you don't know what's happening at this point. So there's this room key. The suit that he was murdered in was sent back. It's not the body. What's happening? So she runs out. She's very distressed. And in comes um, Detective Fichet, Yes. So he's a very kind man and sees this, this poor woman that needs help and is like, well, I'll help you. And she's like, no, 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 I'm fine. And he's like, no. And of course, he just insists on helping her. So he gets in the car with her and goes back to uh, the boarding school. She her. says, I have no money to pay you. He said, I'm just going to ask some questions. You pay me if I find something out. Let's just see if we can find your husband. Couldn't have gone worse. She literally went to the morgue and came back with the detective. Because I think Nicole even tells her, don't draw attention. Don't. Or anything like that. As she's literally coming back with a detective that just wants to help. One interesting note about this detective is he was the inspiration for Columbo. Yes. And you can very much tell that. Because... He's very, he's just kind, he's very good-natured, just wants to help. It reminds me a lot of the Columbo character, but it was years in between. Yeah, I mean, he's very rumpled, just in this hat and trench coat, and just kind of pleasant and nice. And I can't remember the name of the actor, but he, would, he worked with Clouseau a couple times, and they talked about the school of acting that he was from, because he was very much old school, and could slip into any role that was put in front of him. So he was really a chameleon of sorts on screen. So, and you can tell from watching him how good he is because it's so effortless. Yeah, it's just completely at ease. Like he's not even trying, he just is that. And Christine de la Salle, Vera Cruz, so an opposite of him is just completely coming undone. It's, she's barely holding herself together. And it's such an interesting contrast because the more at ease he is, He's not worried. He doesn't think anything's wrong. He's just trying to help this nice lady. The more wrecked she's becoming. So it's like the nicer he is, the more helpful he is, the worse off she is. So it's very interesting to watch that play out because very two different things are happening for those characters. So he comes to the school and is just asking some questions. And... Nicole is not having it. No, she is not happy one little bit. And she makes it real known. And we're building up now to the final bit of the movie. Yeah, because I think this kind of this portion is just him trying to find things out. They're talking to kids. This one kid said that he sees the headmaster. So you kind of wonder, is the ghost of 
Michelle haunting Christina? Because Nicole doesn't appear to be very bothered by it. It's mainly Christina who's bothered by what's going on. And all of these strange occurrences keep happening. You know, they find the lighter, they don't find the body, the suit gets sent back. Christina's um, just deteriorating. Yes. And her and Nicole have a big fight where she says that she's going to turn herself in. And Nicole says, well, what if I turn you in and say that I didn't have anything to do with it? And Christina says, well, I'll tell him that you did it. And it was all your idea. Mm-hmm. So well, of, this is imploding. Of course, they end up not turning anybody in. Right. Because neither one of them want to get caught. No. Because that won't turn out well. <laughs> But no, with this one kid, Monet, because they mention him by name, and that's really interesting because they don't really mention many of the students by name. But Monet see, says that he sees the headmaster and that the headmaster punishes him because he's outside doing some kind of chore. And they're asking him, why are you doing this? Fiché asked him why he's doing this. And he said, well, the headmaster told me to. And Nicole slaps him. She calls him a liar because she's like, you know that the headmaster's missing. And he's like, no, I saw him. And is like, well, what if he just came back? And they're like, no, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> he didn't come back. And and then Christina's seeing lights turn on. Like later that night, I think Fiché's gone for the day. And she's seeing a shadow. And lights flick on and off in the building. And so she's just coming apart. It just, it very much feels that this, that Michelle in some capacity is haunting her. And we get to the point where she finally, she's too weak. The doctor puts her in bed and tells her to stay there. That her, like she is going to die. She's going to die. Her heart is giving out. But she's still a pretty strong lady. Yeah, but and she's still very much, she's not really concerned about herself. She's still concerned with what's going on. Where is the body? Where is the body? But, yeah, so she's literally laying on her deathbed, still consumed by what's happening with this murder. And she sees some lights coming off and on. Oh, is that when that happens? I thought that happened earlier. I think it happens twice. Oh, okay. Because something compels her to get up out of bed and walk down the hall to Michelle's study. Is this when the style changes so drastically? It does. It becomes very, um, almost film noir at this point well, with the lights and the shadows and a lot more melodramatic. Well, because it's, it's backlit. Because... She's walking through a doorway into this long hallway, and it's backlit in the doorway. So it's shining on her. So it almost creates this, like, otherworldly, ethereal kind of thing. And this nightgown, I did not notice this our first viewing. The second viewing, you can fully see her nipples. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thing is sheer and see-through. Which is fine by me. It's just, again, 1955, you wouldn't ex- I wouldn't expect to see nipples. But this is French, so here yeah. we are. Uh, one thing that they said in the commentary is that the um, the restrictions on film weren't the same in France as they were in America. There wasn't the censorship, so you never would have gotten away with that in an American-made film. A lot of things about this film would not have gotten away, been gotten away with had it been made in America. One thing we'll touch on in a few minutes. I know. But, um, so she, she gets up and she's walking down this dark hallway to Michelle's study, and she hears the typewriter typing. And she it's walks so- in. It's so, I can't even explain the feelings. Because you're, because the way that this whole scene is shot, because you hear the typewriter and it's just, there's no music, you just hear the typewriter tapping. She's making no noise, but it's just a close-up of her, of her face. She's covered in sweat and just the terror on her face. This is such a, a tense scene. It's so well done. Well, you feel that terror too, because... You know. Do you know? It's, I mean, there's a ghost. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know. At this point, I didn't know what was happening. I was freaked, though, because the thing for me that is always scarier than the scariest movie is someone's reaction to terror. If you give a good reaction, a terrified reaction, that'll scare me more than a jump out kind of movie. What's unseen is always scarier than what's seen. Because what you make up in your mind is specific to you. So you will come up with a thing that scares you, whereas whatever they put on screen might not scare you. Well, it's like Rosemary's Baby when she looks in the crib and you can't see the face. It's like, that is the scariest moment because, oh my gosh, her face. 
like her eyes are gonna pop out of her head. I digress. But that's just one of those scenes where it's like it's just it's it's completely relying on the reactions of the actor. And Vera Cluso is giving you everything in the scene. So she walks into the study and there is a paper in the typewriter that just says Michelle, 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 Michelle. And in one of the weirdest tricks a ghost has ever pulled, there is a glove on the typewriter. Not one glove, two, two gloves. gloves. And they're perfectly positioned just like the hands dissipated and the gloves were left on the keys, like where they were typing. So I'm not sure why this ghost left their gloves behind, but... Oh, but maybe that's why. Because they just disappeared and the gloves came oh. off. The gloves are off. <laughs> I was thinking maybe the ghost needed the gloves to physically be able to type. Yeah, and then he just left him there because my hands dissipated. Yeah, because they didn't need it anymore. I don't know. That that was a weird little bit to me. To me, it, it we'll get into what I think that was later in just a minute. So she sees the paper, she freaks out, she runs back down the hallway, locks herself in the bed in the bathroom, and turns to the bathtub. And there is Michelle. In the bathtub. In the bathtub. Just sitting in water. And she looks at him, again, gold star reaction. As he slowly stands up. His eyes are closed, and then they're kind of open to where you can just see the whites. And it looks just like a reanimated corpse just raising up. She has a heart attack and dies right there at the sheer sight of this corpse coming back to life. So... She crumples down on the ground, has a heart attack, and is dead. And this corpse is just standing there. And then all of a sudden, it moves up to a close-up of the face of Michelle. And he starts taking out contacts. He's been alive the whole time. These really awful, painful-looking, like, They're, like, eyes. so thick, and they, like, go under. They look like the caps of those things you get on a vending machine. Yeah. Like, that's how thick they are. They're really terrible-looking. And... One of the comments on the special features said that this was one of the first times on film... This was, I believe, the first time. ...that people saw someone take contacts out. Because it's so ritualistic and methodical, the way that he does it, because he, like, rolls his finger on the top of his lid and, like, pops it out and does it the same way on each side. And the camera stays right on him the entire time as he does that. Yeah, pretty close on his eyes, too. It's mm -hmm. really, it's very unsettling. It's, yeah, especially if you have issues with eye stuff and, like, eyes being touched. That I would recommend maybe fast-forwarding through that yeah. part, even though it's a great, it's a great part. But, yeah, you So might. he's alive. Yeah, he's alive. And Nicole runs in. Christina is dead. And... Nicole and Michelle have been in on it the whole time. And they kiss, and they go, now we can sell the school and run off together. So the whole time, you think these two women are in cahoots to kill this man, and the whole time it's the man and the mistress in cahoots to kill the wife. And your whole world is shook. It is rocked. And they're, they're leaving. They're going to get away with this. And they start talking about all the things they're going to do with the money. But unfortunately for them, Fichet has come back and catches them and leaves you to believe that they did not make it out of the school. So the school is closing down. All the boys are being sent home. The teachers are packing up. And... Erbo, I believe, is how you say his name. One of the older teachers. Yeah. He sees the one boy... Monet. With a slingshot that Christina had taken away from him at one point. And he shoots a window out of the school. And he says, this is a fine way to treat the school on the day that it's closing. Where did you get that? And he says, Madame de La Salle. And he goes, he, he fusses at him and like, you know that she's dead. They took her body away this morning. And he goes, no, she's not. She's back. And he goes and makes him stand in the corner. Yeah, so the, I think the film ends with this poor kid being made to stand in the corner again. Yeah. Monet cannot win, Justice for Monet. Yeah, he's <laughs> a real hero of the story. <laughs> but yeah, so it leaves you not knowing. What do you think? Is she dead? I think she's... I, I, she feels like she would be a ghost. I feel like that woman had enough emotional trauma that she could come back as a ghost. Probably. Well, they took the body away, so I don't see how 
she could be alive unless she was in cahoots with the police department. Yeah. So this film is very simple in plot and script, but Clouseau and the women that he has cast make this film a masterpiece. Even if you know what's going to happen, you can watch it with those eyes and see the way Clouseau sets it up for you. He sets it up from the very beginning for you to get that, the way that he films them. He, he very much always puts Nicole and Michelle on the same plane and puts Christina by herself. Whereas you you think that Nicole's trying to defend Christina, but really the whole time she's she's in the same spot with Michelle. It's always them against Christina. Christina's always isolated. And he sets that up for you. A lot of times they literally are making a triangle. Literally. A trifecta. But, and the way that it's filmed is it leaves reason to believe and reason to imagine how they did it. Because while Michelle was getting in the bathtub, Nicole's typing on the typewriter and probably left the gloves there stage. When they initially kill, I'm using my air quotes, kill Michelle, um, she has Christina leave the room. And that could be the time, because they talk about it after he comes back and you realize that he's alive, that he had a little straw, like a, a little system where he could breathe, a little breathing tube. So you know that that was probably the time that she's setting him up with all of this. So you never see it happen, but you see the moments where it did happen. And when you go back and rewatch it, it's so brilliant. One of the interesting things is that we, we don't know any more than Christina knows. Yeah, you always know as much as she does. That's what you know. Except for one scene on the train where Michelle is coming up to meet them at Nicole's house where we see Michelle flirting with this girl in front of her mom. That's the only scene that takes place that Christina doesn't know about. Outside of Christina's world. Until she does. Right. So the whole time you think you've been given all the information. And Nicole's always treated as kind of a mysterious character. You don't know a lot about her. And you don't, I don't know that you're really focusing on her. You really focus and empathize with Christina. So you feel like you have the whole story, but then in the end, you realize you've only been given a part of the story. Clouseau's only allowed you to see part of the story, and it's what Christina saw. But there's so much more that's happening. And the other thing with this is they take a lot of unbelievable situations and make he makes it believable. Because it's like they're going to murder this dude with the tenants downstairs. They're going to do it right there. It's like that doesn't seem like the smartest idea, but you believe it. You believe that, you know, all of these wild circumstances, you believe them because the way Clouseau and the actors give it to you makes it believable. Yeah. One interesting tidbit about the drowning scenes is they actually made him stay in the bathtub for the two days that they were filming the scenes. They gave him 20-minute breaks, though, so that he could warm up with whiskey. Yeah, so he stayed wet and drunk, but overall fairly happy for those two days. I believe Maurice described it as he was wet and pleasantly drunk for two days of filming. So he had a great time. Um, and while this movie is very male-dominated in the way that it's the way that it was created and who's creating it, it's excellent roles for women because you really get to see complexity and you get to see that how you view a woman isn't always how it seems. And I really appreciate that because, like I said, at the time, the Hollywood machine did not give you that. You got very much these cookie-cutter images, these one-dimensional images of women. But what this movie has done is given you these two roles for women in leading roles and it's completely blown your concept of what what a woman can be. They're both very strong women. In very different ways, though. But they didn't condemn either one of them for their strength. No, because it's like there was a, a adultery happening, but it was very much a subplot. I always like to joke when I first saw this, I'm like, they handled that in the most French way possible. <laughs> because it just wasn't... The, the adultery, the, the cheating was not the focal point. It was the relationship between, between these two women and then kind of the twist at the end where you realize all is not what it seems. 
Another thing that was alluded to in the movie was that there was a lesbian relationship going on between Nicole and Christina. Well, because in the book that it's based off of, which has a beautiful French title that I cannot pronounce, but the book in English translates to She Who Was No More, it's actually... How does it go? Because the there is a lesbian relationship. So they the are husband and the mistress murder the wife to get her money, but in the end it turns out it's the wife and the mistress who are having the affair and they convince. get the husband to commit suicide. So that's that's what the book was. And at the time, that, that movie wasn't going to get made, so they had to make it so that it was a man and a woman and not two women. The authors of the book were not particularly happy about all the changes mm -hmm. that were made. No. They were happy that they their book was made into a movie, but they weren't happy about the they changes. Felt, they did feel manipulated. And I feel like that kind of, that book deserves to kind of be revisited. I feel like today it's like, because I feel like the way Clouseau made films, which at the time was not, was becoming less appreciated because the, the way he filmed was going out of style, and it did for a time. But now we appreciate that so much more. I wonder what a modern director could do with the the real story, with the story that the two authors actually wrote. Well, what's interesting to me is this movie was remade in... 96. In 96. Very terrible it, remake. So it, what it was is visually beautiful. They got it perfectly. It was scored beautifully. Everything about the movie was beautiful, except it had no substance. Even the actors that were chosen were right. But the the script was awful. It just wasn't good. You didn't get the feeling of suspense. The direction was terrible. They rushed through everything that Clouseau took so much time and patience to pay attention to was just completely rushed over. It was that boat in the puddle in the beginning. They just completely mowed over it. Everything that made that movie special they excluded from the 96 adaptation. And this was almost an exact remake. Like some, shot for shot. Except for the ending. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen them take the book and make that story. I but in that. 96, they couldn't... Because the lesbian relationships alluded to a little bit more in 96. Yeah. But still, I don't know that they could have made that Hollywood movie. still wasn't, wasn't brave enough back then. They still very much catered to ignorant views i think now is the perfect time for somebody to i would love to see a woman take this because imagine a woman so get a woman to adapt it get a woman to direct it a woman that knows the thriller suspense get some actors in there like show me that movie i would i would be all for this one thing that i really the, the one thing that i loved about the 96 version was the fact that they made the investigator a woman. Kathy Bates played the detective. And she was awesome! That was like my favorite part, was that they had a woman, so it was like these three women working, well, kind of working together. But I think that would be so cool if you like made the women lovers, or if it was, you know, the, the woman and the man that supposedly killed the mistress or whatever, if you made them lovers and made the detective a woman as well, put a female team behind this, I think you're going to get a much richer, more complex story. It would be amazing. Something someone said to me um, recently in a training for my job is that when you have more diversity, you will always have a better product. Diversity does nothing but make it better. And that would be an interesting thing too because the original story was very white. Mm -hmm. But so was the remake. And they could have they could have done anything with the casting in the remake. They really could have. And I think there are so many great actors out there. And I think there's so many great diverse casts that are proving that genres can still be fresh and new if you make them diverse. But if you give people the same things you've been giving them for 20 years, that's going to get boring and convoluted. Because um, there's this great actress, and she's the star of Crazy Rich Asians, Constance Wu. She's in a great show on um, ABC called um, Fresh Off the Boat. And it's like completely redefining the comedy, like the sitcom genre for me. I think she would be incredible in this because not only can she do comedy, she can do drama. And I would love to see her in something like this. I think she would be incredible. So the remake has a 12%
score on Rotten Tomatoes. That high. <laughs> I'm really shocked. Because the original film has like a 90-something. 95%. That's... They should be ashamed. So I did something. I work at a used bookstore. So pretty much every book or movie that I buy is from there. I went to Barnes & Noble and had them order me a copy of this book because I couldn't find it anywhere. And they just called me today to say that it's in. So I'll be picking it up did you tomorrow. Say that? Did you say that? that to tell me? That's so exciting. No, because I was just thinking about that. I almost mentioned that to you earlier when we were doing notes. I wanted to read the book. I thought you might fuss at me for buying another book. Well, I do fuss at you for buying another book, but give it to me. I don't okay. know. So one interesting thing about this movie is that Hitchcock really, really wanted the rights to this book. Oh, yes. He, he wanted to make this film. And he was very upset that he didn't get it. And the interesting thing about this movie is you may not realize it, it was a commercial success, even in America. Like, it was not relegated to an art film. It had broad appeal. It made over a million dollars at the time. That's, that's incredible for a movie. So it, And it really was the first movie of its kind to feed the audience a narrative that at the end turns out to not be true and give that twist. And you, you see so many movies now doing that, and movies like a few years after it doing the same thing. Hitchcock does the same thing. And there's all these subtle little nods to Les Diaboliques in all of these different movies. Uh, even the way the women look. Because Janet Lee in Psycho looks like Simone Signore. A lot of people said that Psycho was Hitchcock's second attempt to try to make something as good as Diabolique. And also, something interesting, he didn't get the rights to this book, but the authors wrote Hitchcock another book that later became Vertigo. It was not, and something that needs to be mentioned is Vertigo was not necessarily the great success that we think of it as. It's a masterpiece now, but at the time it did not do very well. So. Hitchcock probably felt that, once again, he had failed to make a movie as good as Diabolique's. I recently watched an interesting movie about the making of Psycho, which apparently didn't get very good reviews, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's with Helen Mirren and Anthony Hopkins. And... Because Vertigo wasn't a big success, he was desperately seeking what he was going to do next and hit upon Psycho. But there are a lot of parallels to this movie in Psycho. A bad scene happens in the bathroom. Bathtubs, they don't like... Bath, bathrooms are scary places. There uh, is a story that Roger Ebert talked about that a guy wrote to Hitchcock and said, my daughter wouldn't take a bath after watching Diabolique and she won't take a shower after watching Psycho. What am I supposed to do with her? And Hitchcock wrote back and said, take her to the dry cleaners. <laughs> Sponge bath. <laughs> so he was definitely trying to make, you know, this next great thing, which he did with Psycho. But he did something interesting. Both Psycho and Diabolique had a warning at the end saying, please don't spoil this for your friends. Don't tell anybody the ending. Which they both stole from Agatha Christie's mousetrap. I was able to see that when I was in London a couple of years ago, which was one of my bucket list things to do. And all the actors come out on stage and say, you know, the show's been running for 60 years, but please don't tell anybody the ending. You don't want to spoil it for anyone. That is a thing that I also want to do as well, so let's go to England and go see it right now. I will definitely go see it. You buy the tickets, I will ride on the plane. And in a little bit of trivia that just goes back to that, uh, Agatha Christie's grandson is very upset that on the Wikipedia page they put the ending. Trap. He tried to get them to take it off and they wouldn't do it. Do they really? Mm -hmm. I don't think I know the ending to Mousetrap. Well. Because it's not a movie, right? No. And I don't think I've ever seen the play. It's such a good play. I don't think I've ever seen the play. Because I didn't see the one that they did here in Austin recently. I missed that. So did you figure out what was going on? I kind of was like, oh, wouldn't it suck? if it was the husband and the mistress. But I was like, no, they wouldn't do that to Christina. No, but then they did. And I was like, God damn it. But then they both got arrested, so I was okay. 
I mean, I'm still sad she died. Like, that sucks for her. But maybe she's a ghost now, giving kids slingshots, and she can be happy. And he's in jail. I kept thinking that they were going to pull the rug out from under me, but I do this a lot with mysteries. I'll think, oh, this thing's going to happen. And then as it keeps going on, I'll be like, oh, no, that thing's not going to happen. And so by the time we got to the end, I was fully invested. I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought it was a ghost. She's losing her mind. So, no, I did not see it coming by the time we actually got there. Yeah, I had no idea what was going to happen. I might, I'm a very cynical person, so that was my cynical side of my brain talking and it also wouldn't let me believe that it was a ghost even though like that would be fun but yeah I really didn't know how this was going to end but I thought it ended very well because a lot of times these twist endings really let you down but that's why you should always go with the original yeah yeah so do you have any suggestions for this week yes so my recommendation is what lies beneath from 2000 it is another movie involving murder and water and revenge and husbands, husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. You know, people. People are in it. Yeah. Wet people. Um, it stars Michelle Pfeiffer, Harrison Ford, and it was written by Clark Gregg, who I absolutely adore. Wait. Wait, no. Agent Coulson. Agent Coulson wrote that What Lies Beneath? Uh-huh. Oh, no. Is he twisted? <laughs> It's always those those buttoned-up tight ones, man. Wow. Well, he also wrote and directed the adaptation of Choke, which is a Chuck Palahniuk book. Jesus. So, yeah, he is dark and twisted. Oh, he nasty. Yeah. This movie, it, it looks at a woman who is re-examining her life after her child goes off to college, and she starts having these visions of a drowned corpse in her bathroom, just what everybody wants. That's what every um, empty nester dreams of. Yeah, and she is forced to ask some questions about her sanity and the motivations of the people around her. Interesting. Do you have a recommendation? I do. So I was trying to think of something that could go along with this movie, but... I really couldn't think of anything like it, and I really loved it. I loved what this director did. I loved the actors in it. Um, so it made me interested and curious to explore more French film. So I'm actually going to recommend, because I'm going to be watching this, is another one of Clouseau's films called The Wages of Fear. And this is hailed, I think, as his best film. So I suggest that to you because I will be watching it as well, and I don't know much about it. But I know that Vera Clouseau does have a small part in this movie, so there are some familiar faces. It's really interesting. I don't have anything against French cinema, but I've never watched a ton of it. I just think it's because as Americans we aren't exposed to it as much, and especially being from a small town in Texas, really when are we going to get that opportunity? But for some reason, there's just been a lot of it coming into my path recently. So I think I've watched probably eight or nine French films in the last couple of months. I really appreciate the French filmmaking style. There's something about it that really is art. I can't put my finger on it because I've seen numerous French films that are all very different. But all of them have this really beautiful richness to the story, to the character, to the filming. Um, that is just really, as an artist, if I can get on my little soapbox for a minute, as an artist, it's really gratifying. It's like it's like dessert. So that's my take on French film. All right, so let's talk about our person of interest real quick. So as you know, every week we choose someone here at Fatal Films that has been a supporter or a help to us and this week's person of interest is actually our brand new sound engineer Kathleen Rotondo who is sitting right next to me and we just want to thank you Kathleen so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to help us with this podcast and to make it even better because Lord knows we need help. Thank you, thank you and now it's time for our clue for our next episode. People should make up their minds whether to live or to die and do one or the other with the least inconvenience to others. So we watch and read and listen to a lot of things trying to decide what we're going to present to you. And we'd be interested to know some of the things that you guys are watching and reading and listening to because not everything makes the cut. 
And not everything we pick is great. We could probably pick better things. Yeah. So please let us know because I'm always looking to explore new things. And Lacey said that she is ready to branch out. And, and I will also be told about new things that I don't have to do anything about. No, I'm just kidding. I will also look at new things. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Fems. To keep up with us, please follow us on Twitter at Fatal underscore Fems. Have a suggestion or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemspodcast at gmail.com. While you're at it, make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode because if you didn't, we'll find you. Thanks for listening.